Well, the conkers are already out because they're having their Christmas party. I know, you're jealous. I am. (laughs) It looks so good out there. Uh, My wife has been excited about it all week, so I know. Whether she can be tired this afternoon or whether we're going to have a party at home and take two, I don't know. just want to confirm as well, although Josh claps at everything, he's not on the payroll. Okay, if anybody's wondered all year... If you did get, like, sponsored by Clap, he would be quite wealthy, but he's not actually on the payroll. If others would like to take this crown, any other volunteers to lead the clapping? Marcos, thank you very much. Excellent. Yes. Freud, thank you very much. We're going to start a team of clappers. We should have a clapping ministry going into next year. <laughs> Names will come forward. All right, we'll turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 24. You know, I was thinking this week... Um, about this message and also about Christmas. And I'm like many of you, I've received many wonderful gifts over the years at Christmas. I remember the first gift that I ever sort of remember, I must have been about four years old, and my parents got me a Scalectrix figure of eight track. I was the most excited person probably in the world when I went downstairs and found this. And I've had that experience many times since over the years of receiving gifts and being absolutely blown away and thrilled by what I have received. And yet I think none of us in the room has ever have ever received a gift as special as that which Theophilus has in his hands when Dr. Luke comes back with this message for him. This is all a gift to Theophilus that he may have certainty concerning the things he's been taught. It's actually only part one, because we then get to the Acts, and we get part two of the story. Both of them are written to Theophilus, to help him have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. And in God's kindness, we have it right here in our Bibles, because you realize in his sovereignty, it wasn't just for Theophilus. It's for us as well, that we may have certainty. And this is where the story concludes. So let's read together. Chapter 24, verse 36 through to verse 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. 
While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word and I do thank you for the gospel of Luke. Lord, what a joy it has been over the last 20 months of our lives to walk with you each and every week. To stand in your footprints, to see what you saw, to hear what you said, to see you through our mind's eyes. Oh Lord, as we come to the conclusion today, I pray that we would once again see you and that it would stir our hearts. Lord, may we be more like you and more equipped to follow you as a result of the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are some illustrations in the Bible that I think can't help but get stuck in your minds. I know for me, I'm a very illustrative person. I tend to learn by seeing most of the time. And so when you come across illustrations and metaphors in the Bible, they tend to get stuck in my mind. And one of my favorites by a long way is James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 19, this is what he says. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And I think the reason why that gets so stuck in my mind is because I think it is one of the most practical moments in all of Scripture where he helps us see, as a congregation, as Christians, if we're just hearers of the word of God, you are never blessed doing that. You've just heard something. You're blessed by your doing. And if you don't believe me, he goes on to say, it would be like a man getting up in the morning, effectively, looking at yourself in the mirror, realizing you've got a bed face going on and your hair's everywhere, and going, yeah, carry on and just do nothing about it. That's really weird. You should be doing something about it. And in light of what you've seen, you make changes so you can be a blessing to others and indeed look better for yourselves. The importance of Scripture is helping us see we can't just be hearers of God's Word. We must be doers. And it's when we do that we are blessed. Are we blessed in our hearing? No. We're blessed in our doing. Peter David says it this way. He says, no matter how extensive one's scriptural knowledge, how amazing one's memory, it is self-deception if that's all there is. Listen, true knowledge is the prelude to action. And it is our obedience to the word that counts in the end. I love that. True knowledge is the prelude to action. What counts in the end is our obedience to God's word. He doesn't just want us to be hearers of God's word. He wants us to be doers of God's word because it's as we do that we are changed and blessed. And what I love then about this final scene written to us by Dr. Luke 
is that right here it tells us what we should do now. In response to everything we've been studying for the last 20 months, what exactly are we meant to do with it now? How should we respond to the life and the death and the resurrection and indeed ascension of Jesus Christ? How should we respond? And what you discover in this final scene is that the end of this book really is just the beginning. See, it has been in some ways a marathon, has it not, to study this book together. We started it in April 2021. I was only about 32 then. And now, as the years have gone by, we're finally finishing the book. You know, we started it so long ago and it has been a marathon. But it's also very different to a marathon in this regard. When you see somebody finishing a marathon, they are exhausted and they just want to sit down and they want to rest and they want to do nothing. Whereas what Dr. Luke is helping us here is that although this has been lengthy, we're not now just to sit down tired and do nothing with it. Now it's where the race begins. It's where we start. It's where we apply. It's where we ensure that we're not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so I have three points today, all taken from this text that are going to help us, I I trust, understand how we should respond to this gospel. But really just one hope. And it's the hope that we will see and understand this morning that the end of this book really is just the beginning. He doesn't just want us to be hearers. If you as a congregation come to the end of the year and just go, man, I loved the gospel of Luke. It was so interesting. Then we have failed you. Because it isn't blessed by our hearing. We're blessed by our doing. By our application. But the end of this book really is just the beginning. See, by way of background, it's important to understand that this has been a very big Easter Sunday. Everything we read in chapter 24 has all taken place on the one day. It is the original Easter Sunday. It begins then with a small group of ladies encountering an empty tomb and arriving and finding themselves in conversation with two angels. Two angels that tell them, listen, I don't know why you're here. Dead people live in tombs. The point being, he's alive. He's gone. Go find him. It then continues with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Their hearts burning as they listen to Christ explain how all the Old Testament points to him. And then as they break bread with him, as we've done today, they realize in a moment, hang on, this isn't just a stranger following us around. This is him. This is the risen Christ. This is Jesus, crucified and now alive. And now in this scene, right at the end of the day, Jesus then suddenly stands in the midst of all of his disciples. They are behind closed doors in Jerusalem, but he arrives. And what a scene this is. I mean, imagine their day. For many of them, they're just waiting in this room. In the morning, a group of women burst in and they start babbling and telling you, he's alive, he's alive. Yeah, okay, well, listen, thanks for that. Peter then comes in and says, listen, I've encountered him. He's alive. Rightio, yeah, I mean, look, it's been a long day. And then two disciples come in from the road to Emmaus and they're like, we've encountered him. He's explained to us how all the Old Testament points to him. Jesus, he's alive. Listen, guys, this is getting a bit crazy. But then this happens. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. 
But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Well, that's entirely understandable, to be quite frank. You know, he rocks up in the room. The last time they saw him, he was dying on a cross. And now he arrives in a room and he says, Shalom, peace be with you. Peace to you. It's a really normal greeting in the Hebrew. Everybody would say this, shalom, peace be with you. But the last thing they are feeling in this moment is peace. Because as far as they're concerned, this is a ghost. And what do we do for ghosts? We run. I've seen that in Scooby-Doo all my life. You encounter a ghost, you run away. We know that's the way it works. And as far as they're concerned, this, whoa, hang on, this is a ghost. They are afraid. They are so nervous. And so Jesus wants to help them understand, I ain't a ghost. I'm alive. I've risen, actually, and bodily. Verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? I think he knows, really, in his heart, but, you know, let's put the question out there. Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now go straight to the point. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus is taking pains at this moment to help them see, this is me. And he wants to help them see, I ain't a ghost. I've risen actually and bodily. So they recognize his voice and they want to show them. Well, look at my hands and look at my feet. And then he says, well, you can touch them if you want. He doesn't just want them to hear. He wants them to see. He wants them to touch. He wants them to get in amongst it because he wants to show them. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. I'm, I'm a real person. I've risen bodily. I am Jesus Christ who you know. Well, we then read their secondary response. A moment ago, they were afraid. But in verse 1, it says, And while they still believed for joy and were marveling, and I first read that this week. I'm like, what on earth does that mean? Well, they still disbelieved for joy. What it actually means is simply this. The way they're responding in this moment is with giddy disbelief. It's like when your soccer team is 2-0 down and you go into extra time and then you win 3-2. And you cannot believe it. You're like, I can't believe it. We have just won the World Cup, but we were losing just minutes ago. You know it's happened. But you can't believe it because this is the very thing you'd wanted. It's giddy disbelief that they are enjoying in this moment. They're aware this is Jesus, but they are overwhelmed and surprised and cannot believe their eyes. So Jesus continues. He said to them, have you anything to here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. This was not the only time that Jesus actually ate before them. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to these disciples over a period of 40 days, it tells us in the other Gospels and the book of Acts. And at various different times, he did indeed eat with them. Peter told Cornelius this in Acts 10. He says, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. See, this is specific. Once again, Dr. Luke is drawing attention to it. The point is this, ghosts can't eat things. When ghosts put things in their mouth, it falls through their ghostly spirits. But people can eat things, and it remains in their body because their body is real. Jesus is deliberately doing this around them regularly and all the time to help them see, this is me, I have risen, and I have risen bodily and actually from this grave. 
And in the moments that then follow this great resurrection and this great arrival from Jesus, I submit to you that he has their attention in this moment, perhaps like he has never had it before. They're not used to encountering people that have come back from the dead. And this is their teacher. The one who just a few days earlier, they believed to be the Messiah, the King, the Savior. He's back. And he's alive. And he's right here. I reckon you could have heard a pin drop in that room in this moment. They are leaning in to what he is going to say next. And what indeed he does say next helps all of us in the room, particularly as Christians, to understand how we are to respond to Christ and how we are are to respond to him, particularly in his life and his death and his resurrection. When all the music fades now on the Gospel of Luke, what are we meant to do with it? That's what he tells us here. He helps us see you can't just be hearers, you need to be doers. And this is what you are to do. So how should we respond? It's all right here in the text. Three things. Here's the first. The first way I believe we respond to the risen Christ is with an increased commitment to his word. An increased commitment to this. And that doesn't just come randomly to my mind. Just examine the text and examine the story. See, as Jesus begins to instruct them here in verse 44, if we've been paying attention throughout the chapter, then what we will see is that through all these three successive events on this Easter Sunday, all of them have given very intentional focus to the importance and priority of God's word. It's not random. They're not random sayings. But Dr. Luke is trying to help us see, look, every time they send them back to God's words. For example, in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 24, we see the angels referring the women back to the words of Christ, words that he had said to them before. The angel says to them, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. We then see the same in in verse 25 through 27. Through the not yet recognized Christ, he is chiding the despondent Emmaus Road disciples. And he says this to them. He says, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, both times, both occasions, were deliberately being taken back to the Old Testament, to things that have been said before, things that were said a long time ago, God's words, God speaking. And Jesus himself is explaining, you do realize the whole of the Old Testament was actually about me. That every chapter, every, every page whispers my name, every page look forward to me. For all the different scriptures, ultimately they all find their yes and amen in me. And then he echoes that in, in this verse, verse 44, when he is here with the eleven and he explains to them afresh about his suffering and his resurrection in light of the Old Testament. Look at it, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms 
must be fulfilled. Jesus is drawing very direct attention here to the importance and the priority of the Old Testament, of the Word of God, and he's pointing to the reality that all these things point ultimately to him. That's major. Leon Morris in his commentary says it this way. He says, The solemn division of Scripture into the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, i.e. the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible, indicates that there is no part of Scripture that does not bear its witness to Jesus. I love that. Are you aware that in the Old Testament it all points to Jesus? Because for many years of my life, I didn't see that at all. If you had asked me a number of years ago, probably about 15 years ago, hey, listen, tell it to me about, well, maybe more than 15 years ago because I was a pastor then, that was all good. But before I became a pastor, before I studied this stuff, if you had said to me, talk to me about the Old Testament, I would have said, I don't know much about the Old Testament, but I do remember a bunch of Sunday school stories. And I thought that's what the Old Testament was good for. You know, David and Goliath, totally random story just by itself. You know, the the axe head. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Daniel and the lion's head. That's an interesting story. So you have all these random stories in your mind from the Old Testament. But I had no idea that ultimately the whole Bible is one great storybook. And all the way through the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. No idea. And yet what Jesus is helping us see all the way through this is it is ultimately all about Jesus. Every page whispers his name. Brian Chappell says it this way. He says, in its context, every passage possesses one or more of, one or more of four redemptive foci. Every text is either predictive of the work of Christ, preparatory for the work of Christ, reflective of the work of Christ, and or resultant of the work of Christ. I never understood that. But listen, when you do, that has a revolutionary effect on the way you read your Bible. When you realize that it's all about Him. My friends, I want to encourage you then, when you give yourself to God's Word, don't think of it just as Old Testament and New Testament, as history, as wisdom, as gospels of, of, of letters. Think of it this way. I want to keep my eyes peeled for Christ. Because whatever I'm reading, He will be there. It will point me to Him. It will point back to him. It will help a fulfillment in him. That alone, I believe, can have a revolutionary effect on the way we read our Bibles. And that's the point. I believe God wants it to have a revolutionary effect on the way we read our Bibles. And so right here at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we have three very specific moments where they're looking back, they're looking back, they're looking back. And as Dr. Luke looks us in our eyes, he wants to help us see when you read your Bibles, you need to look back, realizing it all points forward to Jesus. It's all about him. God's word is our priority, my friends. God's word is so important in our lives. And so I want to ask you, As 2022 comes to an end, and as we start to think about 2023, what's your plan to get into the Bible next year? What's your plan? You know, I think for many of us, the reason why we're not getting into our Bibles as much as we desire to is because we have no plan. I mean, if the Bible happens to fall off the shelf in the mornings and slap us in the face and start reading to us, we'll go with it. But apart from that, we're just praying about what we should do. Well, we don't need to pray about what we should do. We just need to hear from God. And God says, read it. So we read it. 
What's your plan? Every page whispers his name. If you want to get to know Jesus and fall in love with Jesus and get mature in Jesus and understand how to follow Jesus, it's all right here. You just got to open it. Start reading. And it will all become clear. But if it stays on our shelves, you never, ever will. I believe as Dr. Luke is concluding this gospel, the first thing he wants us to encourage us in then is that we would finish this with an increased commitment to God's word. To getting in it. To seeing it's all about Christ. The one we claim we love and we're following. And we get into it then that we may fall in love with him more and more and be amazed by him. And understand what it means to follow him. That's not all we see here, because what we also see here, I think, by way of conclusion and by way of application, is Dr. Luke wants us to, number two, respond with an increased commitment to witness. To witness. See, in verses 45 through 47, Jesus once again frames everything that has and indeed will begin to take place into the dynamic context of Old Testament scriptures. He points them back again and says, this is exactly what has always been prophesied of old. Even the fact that the gospel will go from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. Well, guess what? That's been prophesied as well. Do you remember all these Old Testament scriptures? He was going to bless Abraham. Why? So that ultimately could be a blessing to the nations. This is how it takes place. The Savior of the world comes and boom, the gospel begins to go forward. He's helping them see this is all in the Old Testament. It's all there. You just have to look. And then he says this to them in verse 48. For you are witnesses of these things. My friends, I want to encourage you as Christians, that isn't just a comment. That's a calling. In Matthew 28, he also calls them to go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The start of Acts, we realize that he commands them to be, there, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's not just a comment, it's a, it's a command on their lives, a calling on their lives to go be my witnesses. Tell everybody what you've seen. And my friends, through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen an awful lot, have we not? We're witnesses to a ton after 20 months. And right here he's saying, hey, listen, you're my witnesses. You know, this emphasis, once again, all the way through this Easter Sunday, this monumental beginning Easter Sunday, there is a strong emphasis all the way through this final chapter on witness. Everything concludes with witness. Verse 9, for example, the women are hurrying back from the empty tomb to do what? To witness what they have heard. To witness what they have seen. They cannot wait but to share with the disciples what has happened. When the two disciples encounter Jesus on the Emmaus Road, they rush back to Jerusalem to do what? To witness. To share with them. Let me tell you what has happened. We have encountered the risen Christ. We hear in verse 34, Jesus has also revealed himself to Peter. Guess what? He's in the room sharing with them as well witnessing I have encountered the risen Christ and right here then in verse 48 Jesus formalizes the calling on all their lives as his disciples what are you meant to be doing with your lives well here's right at the top of the list be my witnesses 
Tell people about me. What you've seen, what you've heard. Tell them about me. And my friends, that call from God wasn't just for these 12 disciples in this moment, was it? It's for us. If you are a Christian, your hand needs to be up at this moment, realizing that's the call on my life. I've been called by God to go make disciples of all nations. I've been called by God. He has sent me into the world. And I've called to be his witness. No, you haven't seen him in the flesh, raised bodily, but you've seen him on every page of this book. He's saying, be my witnesses. Tell people about me. You know, in Romans 10 verse 13, one of the most precious verses in the Bible from my perspective, when we read, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's beautiful, isn't it? It is so inclusive. It is one of the most inclusive words ever. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter how clever you are, doesn't matter your gender. There's a whole list of things that doesn't matter. You just need to understand, I've got nothing and Jesus is everything. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's amazing truth and reality. But in the very next verse, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they have been sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, as we've just looked a minute ago, we've all been sent, have we not? We've all been called by God and sent by God. And so listen, by way of application, my friends, go we must. We got to. Because if we don't, who's going to tell them? Who's telling your unbelieving family about Jesus if you don't? Who's telling your unbelieving friends about Jesus if you don't? How can they respond in the one that they've never heard? How can they ever hear unless you've been sent? Oh, I've been sent. Yes. You know, just this past Sunday... Um, Emma and I had a street party. Um, and I was slightly nervous about it for numerous reasons. One reason is we had one about three years ago before COVID and we had all of about three people come. And so you're like, this is really awkward when you're sitting on your driveway and no one cares. You know, so it's like, please, darling, do we have to do this again? Emma's like just to the right of Billy Graham. So she always wants to do these things. And so she's talking to me about, we should do this street party. I'm like, okay, we're going to go for it. So we did leaflets. And my dear wife and our two youngest kids went and knocked on every door. Of Tanglewood Place and Willow Leaf, and we did the whole lot. And so you're still wondering, are people going to come? Well, they did come. We had 35 people on our driveway last Sunday. Um, it was a great time. We had four families actually ring and say, hey, we can't come because we're already away or we're doing stuff. One guy actually came around and said, look, we're away in Hunter Valley, but we're so sad to miss it, and thanks for putting it on. It was a, it was a really cool thing. I was tired before. I didn't really want to do it. Possibly a slight bit moany as well. But then we start doing it. We start doing it. I'm not loving it. You know, we met a guy that was from London, so instantly we bonded, and that was really, I've never met him before. He's like, where, where do you live? I've never ever seen your face. Um, his wife was from Hungary, and so that was really cool. We're meeting all these different people um, from out. We got invited to New Year's Eve, which was really cool. So we're like, okay, we're going out for New Year's Eve. I don't know what this is going to mean, but we're, we're all in. So we did this street party last Sunday, and I must admit, I was slightly moany before we started. But when I started doing it, I'm like, this is amazing. 
And as we were packing up at the end, people, people stayed for like five hours. So it was like all afternoon. I was like a hairdresser. My feet were so tired by the end because I'd been on my feet. It was just, we were serving people, getting around people, trying to get to know their names. And now we're working out how do we carry on some of those relationships. But as we packed down at the end and I sat in the house, I really felt the Lord bring back to mind a message that I actually gave several years ago. And an illustration I gave several years ago about how unbelievers are in orange jumpsuits. They're far from the Lord. And they're on death row. And they don't realize it. And I just felt the Holy Spirit stirring my heart as I thought back to all the people that had just been on our front lawn and front driveway just a few moments ago. And just the Lord prompting me with, they're still in the suits. Nothing's changed. And it wasn't a rebuke. It wasn't one of those moments where you're like, oh, I'm so sad. It was, just, it, it was a motivation of, son, this is what we're here for. This is why you live here. This is why we do what we do. My friends, we've got to tell people about Jesus. We must tell them. They need us to tell them. They may be really pleasant people that live around you. But if they don't know Jesus, they're in orange jumpsuits running fast towards hell. And they have no clue. And God's given them you to tell them. To be a voice, to share the gospel with them. Listen, does that make you nervous? Because it does me. Put me in front of like 800 people. I feel slightly nervous momentarily and then I'm fine. Put me like one-on-one with unbelievers regularly. I can feel nervous at different times. Like what's going to come up? Here's the thing. They need us. And number two, God is with us. We are never, ever alone. As we go forward and tell people about Jesus, he is there with us in the form of the Holy Spirit. We read it here in verse 49. It says, you are to be witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What is the promise of the Father? It's the promise of the Holy Spirit that I am going to go, but I won't leave you as orphans. I'll send you one just like me. And it's better that I go because I'm like a person in a body. But this next one, he's a spirit and can live in you. And he can be everywhere all at once. It's better for you that I go, but I'm coming back through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he will strengthen you and aid you and be with you so that you can be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Well, last time I checked, that same Holy Spirit lives in all of our hearts. The moment when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, and he is there to cultivate a fire in our hearts and in our bellies to speak the truth of the gospel to change people's lives. So my friends, I want to ask you, what's your plan? As 2022 comes to an end and as you start to think about 2023, what's your plan? How are you going to get more involved with people that don't know Jesus next year? Let's not have another year where we get to the end of the year and we sit in our group and we realize, yeah, it's been a good year. I probably haven't done any evangelism though. You know, one day we won't be saying that anymore because one day we will be dead. And your time's going to be up. Brothers and sisters, would one application then from this beautiful gospel of Luke be an increased commitment to witness? Because somebody's got to tell them. And God's called us to tell them. 
And he hasn't just said, go tell them and just all the best. He said, go tell them and I will be with you and in you, strengthening you every step of the way. Isn't it beautiful? He doesn't just call us. He equips us. And then there's one final thing that I think Dr. Luke wants to draw our attention to. And it's this. We respond with an increased commitment to worship. I love the way this book finishes in this way. Look with me at verse 50 to 53. It says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. I love the way this finishes. This finishes with Jesus leaving the disciples. And even as he's leaving them, he's turning and blessing them. He still wants to help them, still wants to bless them, still wants to love them. He is ascending to the right hand of the Father. He is ascending to the heavenly realms. And what is the immediate effect on the disciples? The immediate effect is they worshipped. It's like no one said to them, hey guys, I've been thinking, um, I, oh, 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 he's leaving. We should sing a song. No one's saying that. It just happens. As soon as they see him, the risen king, the ascending king, they start to worship and sing and praise because he's worthy of it. And then it would appear they rush back to Jerusalem and they get into the temple and they start doing the same. They gather with God's people and they're the ones at the front singing the loudest. Not because they should, but because they can't help themselves. They're so filled with joy, so amazed at what God has done, so amazed that Christ is alive that they cannot help but sing before the Lord. It would appear week after week after week in the temple, blessing and praising his name. I submit to you, I don't think it was the quiet end. I think it was loud. And I think it was with joy, amazed that you came after me and you lived in bodily form and you died in my place and you rose again and you ascended. Oh, you're worthy. I don't think they could help themselves because they kept singing. See, this whole gospel, if we've been paying attention, begins and permeates throughout the entire book with worship in song. When we started the text in Luke chapter 1, we very quickly hear about Mary. And what happens when she hears that she is with baby? She begins to sing. She begins to sing, now my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Her whole premise as she sings is, he who is mighty has done a great thing. You looked on me and my helpless estate. Oh, my soul magnifies the Lord because I realize the Savior of the world is going to be born to me. In Luke chapter 2, then, we see angels breaking in from the heavenly realms. They know that Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, and the angels fill the skies, myriads of angels, it says. And they start to sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men. They begin to sing. It's like the heavenly realms can't hold back any longer. They break in through the skies. And it's like, just let me at him. Let me at him. Ah, they're singing. Because they're amazed. Christ has come. Hope has come. The Holy One has come. Jesus is then born and he's taken to be dedicated. And as Simeon holds Jesus in his hands and as Anna comes alongside him, the prophetess, they respond in song. Because they understand this is him. 
This is the one we've been waiting for our whole lives. Surely the Messiah has come and we're holding him in our hands in this moment. And then we get all the way to the end of the book and the disciples appropriately close the whole book doing what? Singing. Singing praises to God. Singing worship to the Lord. They don't look forward. They look back at all that he has done. How he grew up in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and ascension. And they can't hold back anymore because their soul now magnifies the Lord. Because they're amazed at what Jesus has done. Now friends, if you're a Christian some 2,000 years on, it's now our time to shine, is it not? It's our time to sing. Our response before the Lord too. Singing. You know, one of the things that I've had to battle at different points when I moved to Australia, particularly amongst our more Anglican brethren at different times, which I'm aware many of you were, is as soon as you say worship and we talk about it meaning singing, it's like, ah! You can't do that! Worship's all of life! It's like, I know it is. I know it's all of life. But it's also quite clearly here, singing. And they worshipped him. It's talking about singing. And it's using the word worship. Listen, my friends, worship is all of life. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's everything we do before the Lord. But we must never misunderstand and downplay how valuable singing is. Because singing in the Bible has a very important place. See, singing according to Colossians 3.16 Singing enables the word of God to dwell in us richly in a way that just me speaking to you doesn't in the same way. They're not my words. They're actually Colossians 3.16. says in the Bible that singing allows the word of God to dwell in us richly because as we, as we meditate on words and as we sing them, it helps us to remember them, does it not? They get caught in our hearts. That's why we all have really annoying songs stuck in our head like Baby Shark for the rest of our lives because words do that when we sing them. Well, that's one of the gifts of singing. It enables words to get stuck in our hearts. Also, singing enables us to do something that God loves. In the book of Zephaniah, it says that the Father sings over you. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus sings in the congregation to the glory of the Father. In the book of Ephesians, it talks about the Holy Spirit giving us all a new song and cultivating in our hearts a desire to sing before the Lord. But more than that, Singing uniquely enables us to express our praises to a worthy God. And how precious that is, don't you think? Because he is worthy. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his wonderful reflections on the Psalms. He says this. He says the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed before that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Yes, it does. Unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, Countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. This was written a little while ago, obviously. (laughs) I had not noticed that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, 
So they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising him. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? For the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are simply doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Amen to that. The psalmist is just helping us do. Listen, when you value something, you want to explode in praise. You can't help it. It's called being a human. So just do it and make sure you value Jesus more than anything else and then start singing. That's what the disciples are doing in this moment. And each and every week as they gather in the temple, they are singing praises because they cannot help themselves. And now, as Gospel of Luke finishes, it's our turn to sing. It's our turn to sing praises to the Lord. Yes, worship is all of life. But make no mistake, worship is also song. Singing. He loves it. And it's how we express our praises to him. My friends, the end of this book really is just the beginning. It's not one of these books where you close the doors and say, well, thanks for coming. You close the doors and say, listen, how do we apply this now? What do we do with it? Because we're not blessed in our hearing. We're blessed in our doing. So my friends, I want to encourage you then. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior then the way you respond to this is with faith. The Bible makes it clear that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, it is then that we are saved, that we're forgiven and redeemed. Faith. But if you are a Christian already, which is many of you, I want to encourage you, the way we respond into this, I believe, is through a greater commitment to his word, to witness, and to worship. He really is the ascended king. This is him. So may we live in the good of it and not just be hearers, but doers. And may we be blessed. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for the last 20 months of our lives that we've had touring the gospel of Luke. Lord, we have seen you born. We have seen your life, we have seen your death, we have seen your resurrection, and now we see your ascension. Lord, I thank you for the clarity that is in your word, helping us understand how we are to respond. So may we respond. May we respond by giving ourselves to your word. May we respond through witness by telling others what we have seen, how you have changed our lives. And may we respond with song. Because you're worthy of it all. It isn't just Mary that can say, now my soul magnifies the Lord. It's all of us that know you as Lord and Savior. Because you called our names and you died in our place. So may you receive the praise of us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, let's stop standing, let's sing, let's respond.